Spock! Ship. Out of danger. Yes. Don't grieve, Admiral. Just logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. And then I cry like a little baby. Star Trek has been many things to many people over the years. And when it comes to Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, the second film that never should have been but somehow took the world by storm and is considered by many to be the best of the Star Trek films, Star Trek took a change. It shifted from straight science fiction and became almost literature. Drawing heavily from classic literature, especially from Moby Dick, Star Trek II looked at many different themes and applied them to a context that many changing along with it. To many, that change is bad and represents a significant shift and a complete ideology of who you were and who you want to be. Will you be controlled by the ghosts of your past, your fears, your nemeses, or will you look forward and overcome these ideas of who you are and become something else? Now, there are a lot of people out there who have looked at Star Trek II and all of the Star Trek films and come up with many different ideas and opinions on them and what they mean. I, as an entomologist, look at this film in a few different ways. As a Star Trek nerd, I just love the bloody thing. That fear of the unknown, that fear of change, of not wanting to leave who you were, of wanting to stick with what is familiar or what is comforting, sometimes maybe what even controls you is metaphorically represented by those fun little weird parasites that our dear friend Khan takes and inserts into the ears of, of Commander Pavel Chekhov and Captain Clark Terrell. Now, is this metaphorical analysis and opinion completely arbitrary and I'm just throwing it out there because I want to do an episode on Star Trek and I happen to be a Star Trek fan? Well, I will let you be the judge of that. But the answer is probably yes. Long before any of us knew the proper temperature of Earl Grey tea, and before any of us ever considered asking God what he needed with a starship, there was a man with a dream, and a crazy idea for a science fiction television show. He comes to the CBS executives, they sit down, eagerly listening to his idea, and then they say, no thanks, we appreciate your time, but we're not interested. Understandably distraught, Gene leaves and doesn't give up, he retools his idea and keeps working. Not long later, CBS premieres a fun science fiction show called Lost in Space. Being the shrewd businessman that he truly was, he didn't give up, and he kept fighting until Star Trek became a reality. And for many of us, we owe a great, great debt of gratitude to Mr. Roddenberry and to all the people who were involved in Star Trek over the years. From the cast, 
crew, writers, directors, they created a series of television programs, a world that a lot of us became heavily absorbed in and learned a lot about not just ourselves, but how we fit and view the world. I count myself among one of those who found and fell in love with science as an idea through Star Trek. Not just me, but there are many engineers, astronauts, physicists, and nuclear scientists out there working on all of the nuclear vessels, thanks in part to Star Trek. And that's why I wanted to start season two with my little ode to Star Trek. There were a number of episodes over the years that looked at arthropods, specifically insects, maybe even ticks, that somehow influenced the plot or storyline, either as villainous parasites or friendly neighborhood critters. But it is with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where I see the idea of an arthropod being involved very intricately with the plot. And I'm not totally joking when I say it's a metaphor for the journey that is being experienced by some of our characters. When I was young and first saw that film, the little tiny critters in there gave me nightmares. I was convinced that earwigs were the exact same thing and that earwigs were going to crawl inside my brain and Khan would be able to control me. I had a very active imagination as a child. Thankfully, I grew up and don't have that active imagination anymore. Nope, completely grown up and adult. Yep, yep, yep. Thankfully, I did learn that earwigs are not going to crawl into my ears. They're not going to control me and Khan isn't going to command me to crash the defiant and quote Moby Dick. But that's not to say that we don't have similar little critters on this planet. Creepy, crawly, and mind-controlling parasites are what we're going to talk about today. Because it's never too early to start planning to be your own con. Beware Romulans bearing gifts. So today I present steps so you can become your own con. Step one. Become a genetically engineered superhuman. You'll want to make sure that when this happens, you have a big mind, small ship, and a spectacularly oiled chest. Step two, minions. Everyone needs minions. And step three, this is the critical one, you need your mind-controlling parasites. But which parasite should you choose? There are a lot out there, and the fact is, it depends upon what you want to control. Who will be your nemesis? Who will be your Kirk? Well, if you happen to have a nemesis that is a cockroach, you can try and recreate a more sinister version of Joe's apartment and and harness the power of Ampulex Compressa, the emerald cockroach wasp, also called a jewel wasp. Now, wasps stinging and using arthropods as hosts for their young is nothing unique to the insect kingdom. There are a number of wasp species that will use caterpillars, spiders, cockroaches and other critters as hosts for their young. But what makes this particular critter special is not just the fact that it's rather pretty and shiny, it has a different neurotoxic effect on the brain of the brain of the cockroach that is different from those of its other wasp family. Instead of just paralyzing its prey, it uses its neurotoxins to control the behavior of the host cockroach. The wasp finds and identifies its cockroach that it wants to use, and it will first sting it, which does the normal thing of paralyzing the cockroach. Once the cockroach is paralyzed and just chilling, not knowing anything else is going on, the wasp comes in again and has a more precise sting that goes specifically for the neural ganglia. 
The ganglia are a series of nerve bundles along the ventral or essentially the belly side of arthropods. And we have ganglia too. Our brain is a ganglion. In insects, each segment has its own specific nerve bundle, and these lie along the ventral nerve cord. Now this wasp is so good at what she needs to do, and yes, I mean a she, because the she's are the ones that are stinging. That stinger is a modified ovipositor, ovipositor being the thing that lays the eggs. She's so good at what she's doing that when she gets in there and delivers that second sting, she does it directly to the subesophageal ganglion. And that's where the main brain of the cockroaches. This is what leads to the cockroach to become zombified and submit its will to that of the great wasp. For the most part, this cockroach will just lay there and not really do much. It's lost its ability to do anything autonomously. It's still alive, it's still aware of its surroundings, but it won't get up and move on its free will. If directed by the female, it will get up and move and do whatever it is she tells it to do. That paralysis is gone at that point, but only as long as the lady wasp wants. Not long after that second sting, she will find a nice little burrow, create one of her own for, for the cockroach. She will go back, grab that cockroach, and direct it to the burrow where she will place it and lay an egg. That egg will be laid on one of the coxa in the middle legs of the cockroach. She will then leave, bury it with some pebbles, and the cockroach, is alive, not really moving, uh, but it is there and it will serve as a host for the growing larvae and then the adult to emerge. About two days after that egg has been laid, it'll hatch and immediately begin feeding on the cockroach. The cockroach will still be alive for a good chunk of this time. So just imagine you're laying there doing your normal cockroachy thing and something comes along and stabs you. You're startled, you stop moving for whatever reason, and then you get another stab and a rush of dopamine goes through your body. Well, you're enjoying this experience, but then whatever it is that stabbed you decides to chop off your ears and drag you to a hole, stick you in the hole, poke you again a little bit, laying something sticky on your leg, and then it gets really dark. Two days later, that squishy thing on your leg pops open and starts chewing you and chewing you and chewing you. And after five days of chewing you, it then burrows inside, eats your internal organs, and feasts on every little last bit of life on your innards. Eventually, you will die, slowly being devoured from the inside out by a wasp larva. Inside, once that larva has had its fill, it will form its pupa, go through its cycle and become an adult, pop out that butt and fly on out. And if she is a she, she'll mate and repeat that entire process again with another unsuspecting cockroach. Surely I have made my meaning plain. I mean to avenge myself upon you, Admiral. I've deprived your ship of power, and when I swing around, I mean to deprive you of your life. But what if you, in your quest for conliness, don't have any need for a cockroach to host your young? You might want to look at something else. Perhaps you're one of the types that just likes to watch the world burn, or at least get eaten by birds, then boy howdy do I have an option for you. Leococloridium paradoxum, and yeah, I had to practice that one a few times, also known as the green banded brood sac, is a parasite of gastropods or snails. Now, if you Google snail parasites, this is gonna be the first one to come up. If you even Google brood sac, B-R-O-O-D-S-A-C, it will come up. This critter is well known, well documented, and adorable, in a creepy way.
Now this is a member of the Platyhelminthes phylum, so not an arthropod at all, but still very fascinating and again, possibly useful to your future con. L. paradoxum growth goes through a few stages, just from egg until they're even considered juveniles and have tails and are able to move around. So they don't have the traditional egg, larva, pupa, adult life cycle. Uh, they have something slightly different, again, because they're not arthropods. They're from a different group and they do things their own special way. Once the juveniles have formed, having a digestive tract and an excretory bladder, they have this tail as well. And the tail has fin folds on the top and bottom and setae on the sides. And once they reach the adult stage, they have spines and look more worm-like. They have a dorsally flattened uh, sucker, which they use to attach to their host. But early, before it's a juvenile, before it is a sporocyst, it is a myricidia, travels in the digestive system of a snail. And from that, it develops into a sporocyst. That cyst grows and it becomes a long tube with these uh, a swollen brood sacs. So that's where you get that name. Now brood sac, as it might sound, is a sac uh, with the brood. And you can have tens to hundreds of those little juveniles in that brood sac. These brood sac, they will move. They're not just gonna hang out in the digestive system. They're gonna move up into those little tentacles, those little eyeball-y things that people like to call them, on the snails. And they are going to be pulsating and be flashing in brilliant colors. Generally, it looks like generally going to the left side of the snail when possible. Not sure why on that, but fun, fun, eh. Some people go left, some people go right, some people like to go down the middle. Normally the snail wouldn't want to be where it's bright and open and where they are clearly a target for, say, birds. But with those parasites, with those juveniles in there, with the brood in the, in the uh, little tentacles there, they can't tell what the light intensity is. They are in the dark, so to speak. Now these easily observable snails that are out there flashing their tasty, tasty eyeballs around are easily picked up by passing birds and gobbled up as quickly as they can. Once that snail has been digested and processed and dropped out of the bird, those snails then come along, find that tasty bird poop, and continue the life cycle of that parasitic worm by eating the bird poop. So depending upon your situation, if you feel the urge to eat some bird poop, you might want to think twice because it could have some very nasty critters living in there that could turn your eyeballs into green pulsating goo. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. Now, as I said, step one is become a genetically modified superhuman. Step two is acquire minions. But that's not always easy to do for those of us who are more comfortable sitting next to a microscope than, say, people. So why not start with something that's already kind of got the ball rolling? As many as 40 million people in the, in the United States may already be infected with a parasite called Toxoplasma or Toxoplasma gondii. Most people don't notice that they have this parasite living in them because we have a healthy immune system that keeps it in check. But those who have a compromised immune system or could be pregnant do suffer uh, or could suffer 
very uh, severe consequences or complications from being parasitized by this little critter. Infection by Toxoplasma can happen in a couple different ways. Very commonly, you can eat some undercooked meat that's maybe been contaminated. This looks like pork, lamb, and venison are especially the ones that are susceptible to Toxoplasma. Or you could simply be handling some undercooked contaminated meat and not have washed your hands thoroughly because you can absorb Toxoplasma through the skin. Yay! If you don't then wash and thoroughly clean your utensils that were used to cut and prepare that contaminated meat, you can then get it by transferring it to other meat and then eating that. So double, yay. Water that happens to have Toxoplasma gondii in it, that's another way. And my personal favorite, because once again, we are trying to reach the hard to reach crazy cat lady demographic, if a cat happens to have Toxoplasma and it comes out in its feces and then you clean the litter box, you can get it that way. If you touch or ingest anything that has come into contact with the cat's feces that happens to contain Toxoplasma, that's a possibility. Or accidentally ingesting contaminated soil. Maybe you didn't wash your hands after you were gardening or uh, you ate some unwashed fruit which happened to have some of the Toxoplasma on there. These are the three main ways that you can get it from your cat. And I can hear you thinking, but I don't go stick my hands in Fluffy's litter box and then lick them. Maybe some other crazy person does that, but I would never do that. And I believe you, I do. But do you happen to have one of those cats that likes to get a little something on its bum and it can't quite get it off, so it does the squat and the pull? Well, did you ever sit down and put your hand next to that and then stand up and not wash your hands? Did you then lick your hand after you, I don't know, had chocolate or whatever something else? There you go. I also happen to remember a very fun episode of House. Yes, the show's bonkers, but that's not the point. In this particular episode, a child was spending a lot of time outside in a sandbox playing. Well, the family didn't have a cat, but that doesn't mean the neighbors didn't, or that there wasn't a stray hanging out. And sure enough, neighbor Fluffy decided to use that as its litter box, and voila, kid or person or whoever it was in the episode, I don't really remember, it was a while ago, had Toxoplasma gondii. So it's not as obvious as you might think of how you might acquire this particular parasite. This parasite is crafty. This parasite is tiny, and this parasite just might make you do its bidding. Now what, you ask, is this particular protozoan gonna do for me in my quest to become con? Well, I'm glad you asked, my friend. Rodents infected by the parasite are known to have very significant changes in their behavior. Uh, typically, a rodent will, say, see a cat and go, oh my God, that thing wants to eat me, and scamper away, or whatever radish version of, oh my God, there's a cat, I wanna run away, uh, it will say to itself and then do. But a rat that is parasitized by Toxoplasma will not show that fight or flight behavior. It will just kind of chill and be fine with the cat. And the cat will be fine with the rat because the rat is tasty. But I can hear you asking, I don't want a rat. They're creepy and have fleas and cause the plague. And they don't cause the plague, but that's another story for another episode. But I get the point. No one wants to play with rats, except for the cute ones. So what does this mean for you and your quest? Well, there are some indications that human infection by Toxoplasma gondii 
can have behavioral changes as well. This is still in the early stages and isn't completely clarified, but it is pretty fascinating. And though I like to use the excuse of being possibly parasitized by Toxoplasma gondii as an excuse to have a hundred cats, there really isn't a lot of evidence that that does cause the quote-unquote crazy cat lady phenomena, but whatever. What there is some interesting information on is how this might affect business-making decisions, specifically risk-taking decisions. A study was carried out by collecting saliva samples from 1,500 student volunteers. You will learn, as you learn more about science, that students volunteer for a lot. There are a lot of studies out there with students, and why not use them for studies on parasites? But I digress. In addition to those 1,500 students, another 200 samples were collected from a number of prospective entrepreneurs attending a seminar. Of the samples collected, 22% tested positive for exposure to the parasite. Of the students that were tested, the ones that were infected were 1.4 times more likely to be business majors. For the individuals who were already infected and attending that entrepreneurial seminar, they were 1.8 times more likely to have already started their own business if they were infected versus those who weren't. The authors of this research consider the idea of starting a new business to be a very risky proposition and therefore tentatively link the idea of being infected by Toxoplasma gondii with uh, enhanced risk-taking, at least in business endeavors. Now, I look at this and see some very small numbers and some preliminary research, but it's still fun to look at and you got to start somewhere. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Now, there are a lot of options out there when it comes to mind-controlling parasites that have varying levels of efficacy when it comes to controlling its prey from fungi such as the cordyceps to, to viruses such as rabies and the flu to the malaria parasite Plasmodium falciparum. There are a number of ways that the behavior of the host is altered by the presence of a parasite. There are even examples of species that can host multiple parasites, but we don't seem to have our own version of the ear parasite from Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. In Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, the seti alpha eels, or seti eels, which they're not eels, I don't care, I don't want them to be, were the only known indigenous life form remaining on seti alpha 5, once seti alpha 6 had been destroyed. Desperate and grappling for survival, Khan's crew was picked off one by one, while 20 members of the crew, including his wife, were killed by this bizarre, horrible, mind-controlling creature. Later in the film, we see two of our supposed heroes who have been controlled by this particular little critter. One, our familiar friend, Cap Commander Pavel Chekhov, and the other, a command-level redshirt. The redshirt chooses to do his duty and sacrifice himself rather than sacrificing his ideals under the orders of Khan and the parasite in his brain. Commander Chekhov, through the power of love, honor, duty, and plot convenience, is somehow able to push it out of his ear. And I'm fine with that. 
We then progress to the end, the climactic end of the film, where we have our two foes, one who doesn't need that parasite to be overwhelmed and completely and utterly controlled by his reptilian primordial drive for revenge. He is governed by nothing other than that focus, that need. He doesn't have to have a parasite in his brain. He is going for this to the detriment of all around him, including himself. Juxtaposed with our hero, Admiral James T. Kirk, who begins the film lost, feeling his age, wanting for something to bring him back into the world so he can find his true place in it. No revenge drives him in this. His crew comes to him out of duty, honor, and friendship, not out of fear and anger. No parasites, no obedience out of fear. Our hero passes the test that the worm in Chekhov's ear tried to do and that Khan, without the parasite, gave into wholeheartedly. Revenge. At least until the writers and producers realized you could like make a lot of money from Star Trek and they needed to bring Spock back. But for this movie, it's perfect. And it is there that I will leave you, my dear, dear listeners, and hope that you've enjoyed this little trip down memory lane and memory-altering lane. And I hope that you will join me again in two weeks when I come back with another episode of the Bugs, Blood, and Bones podcast. If you feel so inclined, please remember to hit that share button, leave a like or a uh, star rating, because stars are pretty, on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. If you want to come find me, you can go to Facebook backslash Bugs, Blood, and Bones, or you can go ahead and send me an email at bugsbloodandbones at gmail.com. Send me your questions, requests, uh, favorite cat picture. Share with me your memories of Star Trek and your love of all things nerdy and buggy. Until next time, remember kids, keep calm and... Come!